right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got time for that. Alright? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross! Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017-1320-KLWN. We are three weeks out from this Friday. So Friday and then three weeks from the start of the KU football season. And actually, that means three weeks from this Thursday to the start of the high school football season. That's when Free State and Lawrence High both had their first game. They moved it to a Thursday, I would just assume, because KU is playing on a Friday. That won't be the case for the second week of the season when they're not playing on a Friday. Every time I go on out to KU Football Media Days down at Memorial Stadium, it gets me even more excited for the start of the season. And got to go down there again today. Got to talk with a couple of the defensive linemen on the team, Kyron Johnson, Malcolm Lee, and the special teams and defensive end coach, Jake Schoonover. And every time we get to talk to more and more players, you just, you kind of uncover a little bit extra of a gem of what makes you think that Lance Leipold is going to work here at Kansas. And it just, the more we get to know, the more... I think impressed I become each and every day about Lance Leipold in this staff. And I already liked the hire to begin with. So that's really saying something that we're going somewhere each and every day like this. Um, but what was the key moments for me with both Kyron Johnson and Malcolm Lee and a little bit with Jake Schoonover was just talking about like the attention to detail that the current staff is undergoing, talking about kind of the structure that the current staff has. And these were questions asked by Scott Jason for 24-7 Sports. I want to share the answers here because I think they're really good insight into the difference among this staff versus the last staff. And, you know, sometimes when you ask those types of questions, you might get met with, well, I, I, I love the old staff as well, and... They, they did this better, and this staff is just a little different because of the way they asked to do this and this. But the things that Kyron Johnson and Malcolm Lee both answered with for things that are different about this staff compared to other staffs had to do with things that are better, that things that are helping the team that this staff is doing, that the other staff just, it wasn't happening. Here was Kyron's, Kyron Johnson's answer uh, in that regard strict it's uh it's and it's a lot going into this one and it's like we we're on a more based schedule and like when i say that i mean like everything is like in order now and it's like like it, it, it was in order then but like it's like now it's like you can see a huge difference in like how we go about things at this point and it's like you can't really slip up and miss or be late to anything at this point so the way that I interpreted that was, yes, there was like obviously still a schedule in place. There was obviously still times for, hey, this is the structure for what we're going to do under the previous regime. 
But now, under Lance Leipold, it is a tight schedule. When he says strict, it is practice starting at 8.20 in the morning. Practice is starting at 8.20 in the morning. So you better be at the trainer's table by whatever time. I don't know, 7.45. Get your ankles taped up or whatever. And if you're not there by 7.45, then you're late. You know, maybe with the Les Miles staff, it was, well, practice is at 8.20. If you got to get, get on out there. You know, if you have to get to the the training staff to take uh, tape up your ankles, just do it before, and uh, if you show up to practice a few minutes late. I, I don't know if that's what the implication is there or if it is just more about it's not just that we have a schedule now because we've had a schedule in years past. It's that everything that's on the schedule, we are attacking with tenacity. Instead of it just being something where, hey, this is on the schedule, let's just get through it. Everything is on the schedule for a purpose. Everything is on the schedule for a reason, and we're going to approach it that way with haste, with attention to detail, with maximum effort, with maximum reps. And that doesn't really sound like that might have been the case before. It's maybe a little more laissez-faire. Now, Malcolm Lee, who is a senior defensive lineman, was also asked a similar question. This was his answer. I think the, the, the intensity is pretty comparable, but I, I guess the biggest thing would be the attention to detail. Um, every little part of our I mean, at least during the summer conditioning program, every little part of our day when it came to um, just scheduling, nutrition, uh, weightlifting, recovery, like everything was like highly regulated and it was, it was analyzed and it was used to adapt to our different uh, programs and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that it probably led to such a change in so many guys in the locker room. Just uh, probably the biggest thing is just recovery and nutrition. Um, um, people, uh, it, it's nice to be rah-rah in the, in the weight room and everything, but if, if you can't come back the next day and hit it just as hard, you're, you're not going to see the results as you want. And that's another thing right there, the attention to nutrition, the attention to recovery in this process as well. That might have not been something that was emphasized as much. And from a player development standpoint, it should be. I think it's very interesting to bring up the fact that every player we've talked to or like every coach we talk to and we ask about these guys, you hear about these crazy gains that these players are making, whether it's, hey, my vertical jump went up a couple inches or I'm lifting way more than I was in the past or I've gained so-and-so pounds. And yes, to a certain extent, we get that stuff every year. That's just sports, right? Like, I'm already ready for the basketball candidate coming into this year where it's, oh, they've slimmed down 15 pounds and now they're so-and-so or they've gained 20 pounds and now they're going to be able to bang in the post or whatever it is. Like some of that stuff is overplayed. But the athleticism jumps shows me that something is being done right, whether that means just a player development thing, whether this happens every year and we just haven't been as made aware to it because maybe there's more hyper-focus with the new staff. I kind of think you do attribute it to things like that, like focusing more on the nutrition side, focusing more on the recovery, focusing so much, like he said, it's so detailed with everything that we're doing that you're able to kind of log that stuff more and make sure you're making gains there as opposed to being more of a professional weight room where it's just like, hey, in the NFL, like you're just you're doing your own thing. You're in college to kind of learn how to do your own thing. And again, you just hear about the attention to detail with Malcolm Lee. It's not that, like, you could have the same thing with the last staff versus this staff where it said, hey, practice is at 8.30, practice is at 8.30. But there can be a difference in how you go about practicing, 
how you have the attention to detail, how many reps you get into it, how focused you are on each task throughout the day, not just practice of everything you do. And this staff seems to be trumping the old staff in that regard. And that doesn't mean every staff member, right? Like you have some guys who are carryovers or you have some guys who maybe left for other jobs who maybe that is part of the reason they left. They didn't like the structure as much as you have now. And this seems like an environment that is going to be, that's it's going to allow more of these coaches, more of these players to develop and to kind of hit their potential. You know, a boat, can stay above water and float along aimlessly forever. I guess theoretically, I know, yeah, storm knocks it over or whatever. But theoretically, you can just put a boat, put like a, I don't know, like a small little kayak on your pool in the backyard. It could just kind of float around forever. Nobody's in there. Captain's job is obviously to steer the boat toward a specific destination. And that's kind of like KU football. Under previous coaches, You haven't had a direction always. And it's not necessarily from the lack of trying. It's not necessarily from the lack of commitment. It's not necessarily from the lack of thinking you have a destination. But there's a difference between, hey, we're going to set sail for this island. There's a difference from that. There's a difference from, I hope this goes well. And there's another difference from, we're going to set sail for this island. I have a map. I have all the directions. I've been on this route before. I know what we have to do. I know what we require from all our staff members, from all our crew members on the ship. There's a difference between those things, right? And in Turner Gill's case, I mean, he cared so much, he just wasn't able to put forth his vision. Maybe you classify that as he has the right idea that we're going to make way on the boat for this island. He just doesn't have all the details in place of maybe how to accomplish that. Charlie Weiss. He might have been along for that ride before. He knew what the vision looked like, right? When you spend that much time with the Patriots and in the NFL, with the Chiefs, and then being at Florida, you might have known what the vision looked like. But he might have known too much about that path and thought he was the answer to it and figured that, you know, he was King Midas and that anything he touched would turn to gold. And so that maybe he didn't need to have as uh, big of a staff or. Maybe you didn't need to recruit as well or, or do this or that, and it led to your demise because you thought you were the best thing since sliced bread. David Beatty didn't have the coordinator head coach experience, so maybe you chalk that more up as, hey, I know I need to set sail for this island, but I don't really know what I'm doing here. And instead of worrying about guiding the ship to the right destination, it became kind of over-worrying about things that maybe didn't matter as much basically telling crew hands, hey, this is how you do your job, this is how you do your job, and you're running around the boat. Meanwhile, nobody's steering the ship, and you're not spending the proper time in development or guiding the ship, so to speak, with overanalyzing and overmanagement, just kind of being out of your depth, so to speak, not knowing how to accomplish this long voyage. And then Les Miles, who, beyond the off-the-field issues and possible health concerns, didn't have the attention to detail or good path on the map. And though he was that experienced captain, so to speak, at sea, who was able to get the crew energized and and hire a strong crew. He was having constant upheaval. He was having um, some of the staff leaving, going overboard, so to speak, not giving enough of that detail, not giving enough of the detail of, hey, if we want to go to the north, this is what we need to do. It was more of, hey, we need to go to the north. Can you guys accomplish that? As opposed to, this is how you guys 
accomplish that. You're not going to have that same coaching staff upheaval with Lance Leipold that maybe you had under Les Miles. And you're not going to have that same issue about worrying about the wrong things like with David Beatty or about player development or finding diamonds in the rough or about focusing on the right things. That's social media or a TV show or being flashy for recruits, just grinding, just focusing on the process, being consistent, having that deep attention to detail. And I think the way that you hear both Johnson and Lee in those audio clips echo in those answers, it gives you so much hope. The change is occurring inside the program. It's not just about the staff coming in and wanting to accomplish these things and having more attention to detail. It's that you hear the players talking about it. You hear them buying into the product. And I think that's eye-opening for me to hear from the players. And then you had Jake Schoonover, one of the coaches who I mentioned, say this. We, uh, Coach Leipold, Coach Sleeve, it all goes back to that culture talk we have all the time about understanding you know, process, excuse me, process goals and outcome goals. We're trying to attack that process every day. And that's something they're still teaching. You always hear that all the time. Trust the process, right, with the 76ers. Or you hear it with the New England Patriots and trusting the process and just do your job. And that is kind of what the Buffalo staff coming over and, and Leipold is trying to engage. But you hear those first steps being made by what Johnson and Lee had to say. And I couldn't find the audio. I know this was a video going around when Lance Leipold was a candidate at KU and then eventually hired. It was one of his players talking about that very process when he was at Buffalo. He was being interviewed, and he said, you know, we're, we're to a point that we don't – it's not that we don't care about the wins and losses, but we're less concerned about the wins and losses – we're just concerned about the process, doing the right things every day in practice, and we know the results are going to come as a part of that. It's one thing to have that be said to you, but it's another thing to tell when there's that 100% buy-in. And when you're able to focus on the process, but also focus on it through that attention to detail, through those lots of reps, the the speed and, and the amount of reps that these players are getting in practice that you weren't in the past, and through worrying about the right things, that is how you turn around a program like Kansas. It won't happen right away. We know that. And having long-term buy-in from the players, that's going to be the real key. Can you get the long-term buy-in? Can you, if you're not winning games right away, get the freshmen and sophomores to still buy-in? Get a new batch of recruits to still buy-in? That'll be the big question. But long-term, with Lance Leipold guiding the ship, I think you really have to like whatever destination this seems to be headed for. And it seems like the players are really starting to buy in. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins us in about 20 minutes. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's, you know, washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. 
Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express car wash. About 20 till the top of the hour here. This is Rock Jock Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. David Lesky, Inside the Crown, joins us now on the show. Subscribe to that Inside the Crown, by the way. Awesome stories. Write to your email. I think my favorite one is always the Monday one, which we get the recap of everything that happened over the weekend. You, you know, you might be busy. You might not be able to catch every game over the weekend, but it's a perfect recapture of everything that did happen. Um, so David joins us now. I'll start off the bat with a very pressing question. Who is better, Nikki Lopez or Whit Merrifield? Uh, <laughs> I mean, right now it's kind of Nikki Lopez, right? I, I think that I mean, Whit Merrifield, he's, he's, he's played a really much better second base since early in the year. Um, but he hasn't hit in a long time. And I mean, he, he had a nice stretch in June. Um, the first, what, 10 days to two weeks of the season, he was pretty good. But he's actually been a pretty big problem at the top of the Royals lineup. I mean, the season on base percentage is only, what, 313, 314, somewhere around there. But he's been hovering much lower than that for most of the year. He's kind of buoyed by a really, really strong start. Um I, I I think it might be Nikki Lopez right now, which is I'm surprised to ever have said that. <laughs> uh, is are are we far enough along now that obviously I know the answer to this is going to be they're not going to do it, but <laughs> should Whit Merrifield still be playing every day? No, <laughs> I mean he look he, he's I, with, with the current roster. Yes, I mean he. He should be playing more more often than not, at the very least. But I think if you look ahead and you've got Adalberto Mondesi coming back for however long it ends up being, um, and potentially Bobby Witt Jr. coming up at some point, Dayton Moore, I mean, he made some comments that, that he feels like he's pressing. Um, his, his weight is not pressing. He's pressing weight at the big league. Um, I mean, at some point you got to look at that lineup and go, well, where does Witt fit? I mean, where where does he fit as as the guy with the least upside? <laughs> he's not he's not getting on base like Nicky Lopez as good as well as he's played at second. He's not as good as Nicky Lopez defensively at second. So, I mean, you can make a pretty good argument that he should be a utility guy roaming around the field, but he won't be. And um, you know, hopefully, he can regain whatever whatever's left in the tank for him. Um, finish the season strong, have a good 2022 because he's here. <laughs> he's, on, he's on the roster. He's, they made that very clear. He's not going anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he's had, he's had a, I mean, there, there's no other way to put it. He's had a down offensive season. It, it's as simple as that. And when, when a guy's 32 and he has a down offensive year, you, it's not a given that he's on the decline. Um, but, I mean, I think that you have to at least take that possibility very seriously, right? Yeah, and I just wonder if, given Dayton Moore's comments about Adalberto Mondesi, like not being a 100-game player, where he's basically at that point more of a really good rotational piece, it almost, to me, feels like it would make too much sense to at least until Bobby Witt is around kind of just have like a, a Mondesi and Whit Merrifield platoon. 
Yeah, I mean, but again, like you said, it's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's going to play every day until his legs fall off. Which, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know where the blame lay, lies here. I, I don't know if there is blame that lies anywhere. It's just it, it kind of is what it is. But you have to assume playing every single day for as long as he has. And yeah, he had a break last year. It was a short season. Um, but boy, I. I got to feel like he would have been better off with some time off. And you know, I think back, obviously his streak is not anywhere near approaching Cal Ripken Jr., but um, I remember back when he was breaking the streak and and continuing the streak and all that, a lot of people were mentioning, hey, this is really cool, but also um, you could have been better. <laughs> you, you could have you been a more valuable player if he had played 153 games a year instead of 162 and, and look, it, it, it's hard. It's a hard game to be out there every single day. Uh, play, not, not taking any days off outside of the scheduled days. Just it's tough. I mean, it's, it's a tough road and boy, he's, you're, you're seeing it with wit right now. Yeah. I, I just, I, I don't know what you do because it just feels like there is too much investment. I know what's going to happen. I don't know if they value like the, oh, hey, he's he's leading the, the uh, AL in steals, so we're going for the steals title. Like, is that something they're going to use as promotion in the last month of the season to be like, come on out to the ballpark? It just, it, it seems silly to me that, and, and I think this all just kind of ties in with the 2022 stuff where Dayton Moore is kind of pushed to say, no, we're, we're competing next year, which I, I just think it, is almost this deranged outlook of it to say that, yeah, we're this close to being good. Well, yeah, and, and this isn't to say that Marisol doesn't have big-time value because he is playing well at second base. Right. He does. He is out there every day, which is, I mean, availability is a good ability. <laughs> There's, that is true, and, and he's good on the bases. He's really good on the bases. But, I mean, his, at the very least, he shouldn't be hitting at the top of the lineup. And that's not going to change. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know who – I don't know if Nicky Lopez is a better option or not um, or if Edward Olivares is a better option. He was doing that in AAA. Or if you just bring up Bobby Witt and say you're hitting leadoff. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what the better option is, but I know that Witt Merrifield is no longer the best option, at least at this time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and I don't – and it, it's tough to look at 2022 and say, okay, well, this guy's going to hit 70 times more than your – was it, I think it's like maybe it's like 40 times per spot. I can't remember. Um, but however many times more than the next hitter, you know, I try to justify that with the way he's played this season. And like I said, hopefully it's a blip. He turns things around. He's done it before. Um, and, and we look back on this conversation and laugh at ourselves. But, you know, at, this, at some point, guys don't turn things around. <laughs> they, they just continue on that downward path with the occasional hills. Um, so I, I guess we'll find out because I, I I don't think we're going to see him sitting anytime soon. So we're just going to see how how low he can go. Yeah, and and I don't want this to to make it out as if like oh like I I want Merrifield to be benched or something. Right. I think I I think that's the frustration. What you just said, like can you figure out a way for him to be hitting sixth or seventh in the order instead of at the top of the order, or can you figure out a way for him to be a utility man where instead of playing every day, maybe he's only playing once every other day or two out of every three days or whatever it is. And it's not like you don't have other options there with Mondesi coming back soon. You have Bobby Witt in the minors so and Nicky Lopez for second base. It's not like you have no other options there. And it's just the frustration knowing that there is that stubbornness there 
seemingly with the Royals regime for not just the rest of the season, but that you can just already envision in your head, even if these struggles continue through the rest of the season, even if they struggle or the struggles continue at the start of next season, it's going to be a long, long time probably before Whit Merrifield is taken away from the current role. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and you know, he might he might go to next season as the right fielder, like he was supposed to this year, or the left fielder. I don't know. Maybe they trade Andrew Benintendi. Uh, maybe they don't tender him a contract. I don't know. Whatever it is. But um, I think the odds-on bet is that he is going to – they open on the road, right? Yeah, they're, they're in Cleveland. Um, he will be the first batter of the season for the Royals. I mean, they, they see it, period. He's going to be the leadoff hitter next year. Whatever position he's playing, he's going to be hitting leadoff. And, you know, that, that's – if, if you're dreaming on the team, you better hope that he turns things around because you can't keep this production at the top of the lineup for an entire another season. We're talking with David Lesky inside the crown here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Brady Singer is headed back up. He's planned to start again, I believe, Wednesday. And what, that means a six-man rotation for the Royals, at least mm-hmm. in the near term? Yeah, I think so. Um, my guess, I think they wanted to get this started. Um, around this time of year because they're, they're down to just a handful of off days left. They have one on Thursday, then in the next one's like the 30th, maybe 31st. I can't remember. It's end, toward the end of the month. Um, and so that's, that's a long time between <laughs> off days. Give, give your starters a chance to kind of air out a little bit when they're, I mean, every single pitcher on the big league roster, I believe I, I may, I may be off here, but I think they've all thrown more innings than last season at this point because of the short season, of course. And, yeah, with so many young arms, especially in the rotation, the Royals don't want to push them too, too hard. Um, it's kind of that fine line of how do we get them prepared to throw 175 innings next year while their arm doesn't fall off this year because of the lack of lack of innings from last year. So um, it, it's a delicate dance, and I think they're going with a six-man rotation. Um, it's not going to help the bullpen any, which is my, my concern there, because you're still not going to get unless they're willing to push starters a little bit more in a six-man rotation. I mean, they're still going to have five inning starts for two-thirds, five and you know whatever it ends up being, but they probably have one fewer reliever now to, to clean that up. So that it could end up hurting the bullpen, I think. But um, as far as you know, preparing for next season, I think it makes sense. I think it's a good time. Um, I personally would have left Singer in Omaha the entire season um, after what he's done in the big leagues, but. They thought two rehab starts that went poorly were enough, and that's that's where we are with them. <laughs> so, yeah. So what are you looking for in his return? Is there anything that would make you feel a little bit more confident? If, if he did anything different, if he said, you know what, what I was doing wasn't working, and I've, I, I've started throwing this change up more often, and I'm going to throw it until I get comfortable with it, I don't care if he gets pounded. I do not care if he gives up 10 runs in two innings if he's trying to be a better pitcher for next season and, and look, I get it. I get it at the big league level. You don't want to do that. You don't want to go out there and a, put your bullpen in a hole. Like we just talked about, but B also have your stats take a massive hit just because you're working on some things, which is another reason why keep in Omaha. Nobody cares what his stats are in Omaha, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I would just love to see him attack hitters differently. Um, make any adjustments just because with, with singer that, that that's my biggest issue we don't ever see adjustments and then when he's asked about him he gets upset and, and so i i just want to see some adjustments made and you know i it, it's so easy to root for guys like chris bubich daniel lynch carlos hernandez who um we saw bubich yesterday we're gonna see lynch and hernandez in this series with the yankees 
it's so easy to root for them because they they seem to adapt and try <laughs> try to make changes, which you just haven't seen with Singer, and it's frustrating with them. MJ Melendez got bumped up as well, but he moving up from Double A AA to Triple A. Does this feel similar at all with getting the next wave together in the minors before they come up, like the Royals did a few years back with Hosmer, Moose, and so forth? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I, I was kind of surprised that Melendez didn't go up with Witt and Prado back. Um, I don't know, was that three weeks ago? Maybe. Um, so that was a little bit surprising, but they also have kind of a catching log jam, um, and. I want to get Sebastian Ribeiro at bats, but I also want to keep Melendez playing every day, all that stuff. So not terribly surprising. Um, I think, I think honestly with this, it's more, look, they couldn't keep him in, in double A anymore. <laughs> he was, it was what he was doing to that league was just ridiculous. He had eight homers in his last 16 games, 17 in his last 39. I mean, like video game type stuff, you know? And, and, and I think that at some point you got to challenge a guy and you just can't let him, run wild through a through an entire league. And so he's up now, um, you know, obviously one step closer. That, that, that's the big thing. And, and with, with him and Prado specifically, they both have to be added to the 40-man after the season. We've talked about that a little bit. But um, if they're not added, they're going to be exposed to the Rule 5 draft. Either Both would be taken. I mean, they'd, it, would, it would be a, a, a knockout brawl to, to decide who was going to be the first pick for, for teams in that Rule 5 if, if they were both available. So, um, they're going to get protected. Yeah, being at AAA gives them both a better shot to be up this season at some point if they've got to be added anyway to the 40-man roster. I don't know if they will, but, um, yeah, one step closer. It's, it's that, that Omaha lineup is terrifying, I think, for opponents now, um, especially with Mondesi down there on rehab assignment. That's, that, that's some tough going for, for opposing pitchers if they've got to face those guys uh, up and down one through nine. What would Melendez continuing to rake in AAA and – uh, who knows if that, that means an early promotion or whatnot, but what would that mean for the major league team, not just for the rest of this season, 2022, but kind of beyond as far as it goes with roster construction, Salvador Perez, and so forth? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know how they're going to handle this. And it, it's a really good problem to have, right? Because they went into this season, they didn't know if Prado was going to bounce back. They, they were hopeful, but they would, they didn't, you can't know until there's games. They didn't know if Melendez was going to back, bounce back. They were hopeful, but again, you didn't know. They didn't know how fast Bobby Witt Jr. was going to be able to move. And so you look at some of the decisions they made, the Santana signing, as a two-year deal, for example. I mean, that, of course that makes sense. They didn't have Nick Prado on the horizon when they signed Santana. The Dozier extension, I mean, that makes sense as a depth piece that can play all four corners. But now it's kind of like, well, it's kind of hamstringing them a little bit because of, of the players they have. Even Salvi's extension, I don't think that was ever – I don't think that was based on any other organizational data, just they were going to keep Salvi forever. Um, but at the same time, you didn't know you had Melendez coming. And so now they're faced with a, with a really good problem. And good organizations, the ones that win consistently, and the Royals are trying to get to that, the ones that win consistently find the right players to move. And maybe it's that Nick Prado is the guy to move, and MJ Melendez plays first base and backs up at catcher. Maybe it's maybe Melendez is the guy to move. Maybe nobody moves, and they and they have a really deep roster, which wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But they've got a lot of questions to answer, and I don't I don't have the answers to those questions right now. It's it's it's, it's a puzzle that doesn't quite make sense, but a good organization can figure out how to put it together. We're talking with David Lesky inside the crown. Before I let you go, you mentioned the. 2022 MLB season the schedule is released and 
I spent zero time on it being released because <laughs> I mean, there's only so much you can talk about. Like, like what do you right. have to say? Um, but is there anything of note in that schedule for the Royals? Oh, I mean, we get to the Dodgers in Kansas City, which I don't think I don't remember the last time. It's been a while. Um, they they went to LA in 2017, so it's got to be 2014, I think. Um, so that that's fun. Hosmer's coming back as long as he's with the Padres still. <laughs> they were supposed to be in uh, last season, and then the schedule got changed out to be central teams and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I always look for the interleague teams that come in because you don't get to see them except for every three or six years, other than the Cardinals, of course. But uh, yeah, th- those are the two highlights to me, really. I mean. Otherwise, it's, they play a lot of games in six months, and, and at the end, hopefully they keep playing more. <laughs> I think what you mean is it'll be the Eric Hosmer revenge game when he's on the Royals facing the Padres. Right, because they need to add another first base. <laughs> that's, that's clearly the best option. <laughs> he's David Lusky inside the crown. David, thank you so much for the time, as always. Definitely. Thanks, Derek. All right, that's David Lusky. He joins us every Monday here inside the crown. Subscribe to that Substack right now. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson, FM 1017, 1320, KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017 and 1320, KLWN. Just two KU football opponent preseason previews to go. West Virginia, TCU. Mountaineers are the final game on the schedule for KU, and that's what we get to right now. Jed Drenning is the West Virginia football radio sideline reporter. Jed, thank you for hopping on with us here today on RCST. First things first, with West Virginia as we preview another KU football opponent, Jared Dagey had really strong season when you look at touchdowns, interceptions, and had a lot of 300-yard games, but it seems like there were maybe some more ups and downs there. Is Dagey still the clear-cut guy at quarterback headed into this year? Yeah, he is. Uh, matter of fact, Neil just commented recently on how uh, Jared had a tremendous offseason and really reshaped his body. He's in the best condition he's ever been in. Uh, he's got his body fat a lot lower than it was in previous years, so he's a pretty lean machine right now. And as camp has started, he started it off with uh, stacking some really solid days together. He's spinning the football. He's looking good. And uh, when you look at his production a year ago, I, I kind of regard him as, first of all, it was a banner year for the West Virginia defense. We finished first among all five, Power Five conferences in total defense. And I, I kind of re- regard Jarrett Dagey as the 12th starter on that defense. Uh, you touched on the fact that he didn't pick, get picked off a lot, didn't, didn't often put the football in harm's way. He was smart with his decisions, uh, and he engineered an offense that we were number three in the uh, Big 12 and third down conversions, which helped us be number three in town possession. So we rested our defense, kept them off the field, kept their snap counts down against some of these dynamic offenses. And West Virginia's defense was only on the field for 63 plays per game, and that's the fewest since all the way back in 2010 when we were in the Big East. So I think Jarrett Dagey had a hand in helping the defense, so it was more of a, a global impact that he had on the football team. But the next step has to be, Derek, we, we have to start making and some splash plays, some big plays. From an offensive standpoint, we have the fewest 40-plus yard plays over the course of the last two seasons combined in the entire Big 12. And sometimes you just have to make life easy for yourself, and you can't rely on these long, extended drives. You have to bail yourself out with a quick score. That's what has to happen next. That's part Jared Dagey. That's part the receivers. We're talking with Jed Drenning here 
So the offense needing to get better. I mean, how much better does it need to get? What are kind of the goals and aspirations as we approach another year of Neil Brown where so far there has been improvement every year? Well, I think part of it's what we just touched on. You need some big plays in the past game. You need some consistency in the past game. We were plagued by way too many drops uh, out of a talented receiver room last year. So I think those guys need to step up and show us that they are, in fact, capable of what we believe they are capable of. The offensive line has come together, had a nice offseason addition with Doug Nestor. We developed some continuity down the stretch. We took a huge step. Last year, from 2019, our struggles in the run game in 2019 weren't just they weren't just bad. They were historically bad. So we had to overcome that. Now, we took some big steps forward a year ago. So we took the steps forward that represented the ability to run the football uh, when you didn't know it was coming. But when it became predictable in the red zone when the field shrank or on third and fourth and one, third and fourth uh, short yardage situations, uh, when it became predictable, we were unable to knock bodies around, move people, and be as productive as we needed to be. That's the next step, being able to run the football when you know we have to. And if we can take that step and combine it with some big plays in the perimeter out of those receivers, I think we can make some tremendous strides offensively. Under Neil Brown, the new head coach, what are some of the biggest differences for West Virginia just program-wise from for him versus the previous regime with Dana Holgerson? I think Neil kind of sees the thing big picture, the interconnectivity of the three units. Really, I think that's one of his skills. Uh, he recognizes the fact that football is really a, a three-phase game and the impact those, those different phases have on one another, how the special teams connects to the offense, the offense connects to the defense, and so on and so on. He understands the larger picture of playing field position. He recognizes that sometimes it's not about offensively, not just about scoring or scoring quickly. Sometimes, depending on the flow of the game, you might just need to get a first down or two and punt, and that's fine, and win some field position. Uh, there's been a, a pre- Premium focus on special teams. Our kickoff coverage unit has led the Big 12 the last couple of years. That's not an accident. So I just think that he, he recognizes and appreciates the value of, of, of connecting all three phases of the game and calling things. As an offensive play caller, he doesn't just call them to score. He also calls them to help his defense. He designs his special teams to help his offense and his defense. So he sees the big picture of how all three of those phases are interlinked. And you mentioned how good that defense was a season ago. Was there one thing that really stood out the most about what made that West Virginia defense the number one defense in the conference by points allowed per game? I just think we were tremendously consistent. You know, there there wasn't necessarily one statistic uh, that, that jumps out. I mean, we didn't allow a single rushing touchdown uh, at home last year. Uh, that was pretty remarkable. But I just think our consistency in general uh, – I mean, we showed up each week, whether it was the defensive line or the second level with the backers or some guys really stepped forward in that secondary for us. Uh, we have some battle-tested uh, senior safeties returning. That's good news. Uh, but I just think that they brought their lunch pail. They showed up each week, irrespective of the opponent, and they brought premium effort, maybe outside of that trip to Ames. But we're not the only team to get ambushed in Ames, Iowa, Jack Trice Stadium in recent years. Uh, but I think, by and large, it's just you, you, can, you can count on those guys on the defensive side of the ball to show up up, put their work in, uh, do what's needed. And, and, and maybe the most remarkable part was we had to reshuffle the deck from a staff standpoint on that side of the ball last year. If you remember, uh, Coach Kenny left the, uh, the staff uh, in the summer 
So we had to, to really reshuffle things uh, with a couple new faces in that room. And I think the reason it worked, we had co-coordinators. I think the reason it worked was none of the egos in that room were too big. So they worked well together. Uh, all of them brought a lot of great ideas to the table. Uh, they coached great technique. And I think the kids responded to that and really, really played hard for them. But also, I, I don't think it can be overlooked. Uh, maybe in the past we had these explosive dynamic offenses uh, that Dana Holgerson had with the Will Greers and the Geno Smiths. I mean, we could light it up. But, you know, when you're doing that, you might score quick, but you also punt quick. And that's going to sometimes put the defense in more difficult positions and ask them to do more. And I don't think last year's defense was put in a lot of tough positions. We recognized the limitations of our offense, so we kind of catered things to help a talented defense, and that played a role in it as well. And now heading into this year, obviously losing some studs at really every level of the defense with stills, at least uh, one of the stills on the defensive yeah. line, fields at linebacker Smith and the secondary to Georgia. How does the defense go about replacing those guys? Well, when you look at the spots that we lost those key guys, and those key guys were incredibly productive for us, just as you touched on, you start with Darius. I mean, you're not going to replace a Darius Stills. He's out in Vegas with the Raiders right now. His brother Dante is back, and one of the things we've done, he was on the interior for us on the defensive line. Well, Dante's on the interior, on that interior as well. Akeem Mesidor was a true freshman for us last year, and he played more on the edge, and he was an incredibly disruptive force for us, just a, a very naturally talented kid. He's put the work in. He's reshaped his body. He's put on some weight. We're sliding him down the interior now side-by-side side with Dante Stills, and I look for those two to really create some problems for opposing offenses. So we lost Darius, but I think we're still pretty strong at the point of attack with those two. We lost Tony Fields, who was a playmaking linebacker, and I talk about the consistency that we demonstrated defensively. He was kind of the poster child for that. Nobody was more consistent than Tony Fields. But what we did was we had Josh Chandler Samito, a will linebacker last year, year as kind of a tandem with Tony Fields. Josh slides into the mic spot and he's going to be handed those same opportunities that Tony made and we're really happy with the way he's responded to that. And when you talked about the loss of Tyke Smith, Tyke Smith was a big time playmaker on that back end. Well, waiting right behind him was a kid who transferred in from Arizona with Tony Fields. Didn't get to play a lot last year, at least until the bowl game against Army. And that's Scotty Young who played a lot of quality football for the Wildcats out in Tucson, and he's now eligible, and he's a senior on that back end, and we expect him to step right in, and I'm not sure how much of a loss or disruption there'll be with, uh, with him at that spot. So do you think the defense can be just as good, if not better, this season than it was a year ago? It's a high bar, but I'll tell you what, if we want to turn a corner – uh, and let the offense grow a little bit, it sure would be nice to do it by grabbing some teams by the collar defensively and, and kind of making them hold still while the offense catches up. I, I think the personnel is in place to potentially do it if we can answer a couple questions and maybe solve a depth issue here or there. Those are the things that are yet to be determined. We're talking with Jed Drenning for just a few more minutes here. Last year, the game was in Morgantown. West Virginia won 38-17, to but... Okay, you kept it close for a little. It was 14 to 10 at halftime, 21 to 10 headed into the fourth quarter. Is there anything specifically you remember about that game that stood out one way or the other? I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, Tony Caridi, our play by play guy, and I've talked about this. I think just by virtue of how things unfolded with COVID a year ago, uh, a lot of it was a blur. 
Now, I don't know if you guys agree with that or not, but it was just so unnatural and strange. And, like, he asked me at one point, the TCU game came up a couple months ago, and he said, what do you remember about the TCU game? And I said, I remember we tested twice that week. <laughs> That's what I remember <laughs> about the TCU game. And it, it just seems atypical. So not a, lot of stand, not a lot stands out. It just seems to me that one of the things that, that I remember being concerned with when Kansas came to town a year ago, uh, you might have depth issues, but you always have some skill guys that can scare you. And that was true last year as well. And, and, and honestly, I, I think it's a whole different dynamic and a whole different era that you guys are stepping into with, with Lance Leopold. I mean, uh, the job that he did at Buffalo was remarkable. I think he's going to do some tremendous things for you guys and provide some stability that hasn't been there for a while. So I, I think he has an opportunity to completely reshape things. Now, he has to be thinking, what did I step into with what's going on in this league? Nobody has the answer to that, right? Uh, but that's kind of what I do and don't remember about last year. Yeah, and it, I've asked that to all our guests, and it's kind of an impossible question for not just that reason, but you know, for for most other schools around the Big Twelve, this is the game that is more for forgettable for uh, better reasons or, or worse. But um, just I, I was looking back at the stats, kind of a weird game. West Virginia had over 500 yards of offense. KU was under 200 in the game. Turnovers kept them in it early, and then West Virginia kind of pulled away late. You had a Puka Williams kick return touchdown, which I believe covered the spread in the game. Uh, and then the year before that, you had the interesting game that was 29-24. to So uh, I think there have been a couple interesting games of late. Yeah. And uh, we'll see if that can be the case again this year. It's the final game for KU, I would assume, probably the final regular season game for West Virginia as well. Well, Jed, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the show today. I appreciate you coming on. And maybe we'll talk to you down the road as West Virginia gets ready to travel to Lawrence at the uh, end of November. I appreciate it. I do, as we talk about this, remember Darius Stills' diving interception mm. from the interior of the D-line coming back to make that play and how many times we rewinded that thing and washed it, rewinded and washed it. And I do remember that, but best of luck to you guys. And, uh, yeah, we will see you as this thing winds down. And uh, stay healthy out there. Thank you very much. That's Jed Drenning, the West Virginia football radio sideline reporter, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk to preview West Virginia. This is FM 1017-1320-KLWN. Case of the Mondays, coming up next. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017-1320-KLWN. It is Monday, which you know what that means. It's time for another edition where we get to all the things that maybe weren't as headline-worthy, KU-related, in the world of sports over the weekend in a segment we like to call Case of the Mondays. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. All right, first up on case of the Mondays, Olympics wrapping up. U.S. beat France to win the gold medal on the men's side. They beat Japan on the women's side. Women have now won seven consecutive golds. They have 55 straight wins. The women's side at this point is further ahead of the competition and seems to have a stronger ability to mesh quicker than the men's side is compared to their competition. But the men did eventually squeak it out against France, unlike the 15-point win that the women put out. It was a huge two weeks for Kevin Durant, who carried the teams at times. You wouldn't think he'd have to when you have a team with Devin Booker and Drew Holiday and go on and on the line, but he did. 
And Durant at this point has maybe staked the claim as the greatest Olympic basketball player ever. He's got three gold medals. He's averaging 30 points per game in the three gold medal final games. He's unstoppable. And I feel like I personally, and I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way, didn't really get a chance to dig into the run or enjoy it as much until the final game because all the games were stuck on Peacock. I'm not going to pay $5 a month. We have developed into this world where we've created a system. Nobody wanted to pay for cable and all these outrageous fees. So we started streaming services and everybody was paying 25, 35, 40 bucks a month. Sure enough, all these streaming services after getting people to jump on have raised their prices. They're all around 60, 70 bucks a month now. And every company now has a streaming service where you got to pay an extra five, 10 bucks a month for their streaming service. And now we have just developed cable where you're going to be paying $120 a month to buy all your different channel packages that you want. We have recreated the wheel and it is so silly. And I wanted nothing of having to pay for Peacock. So I didn't, I didn't want to pay the five bucks in a month in perpetuity to, to pay for Peacock to watch those games. And I'm sure a lot of people felt the same way. Uh, but overall, the medal count did end with the U.S. on top. We had the most golds as well. The women's volleyball team, at least chronologically, were the reason why we ended up with the most. And that was cool, too. It was the first gold medal at the Olympics for the U.S. women's volleyball team who put together a absolutely dominant performance over the course of the tournament. They finished it up with a sweep of Brazil. We also had the most silvers. U.S. had the most bronze. You have the most total medals as well, 113. China had 88 in second. The Russian Olympic Committee, which that whole thing was so stupid to begin with, as if, oh, they're not Russia. They're the Russian Olympic Committee. Wink, wink, had 71. Australia at 65. Japan at 58 to round out the top five. So another successful Olympics for the U.S. Uh, the NBA is investigating early contracts for a couple players. We get this story once every year nowadays with the NBA because – you're not supposed to tamper with players. And somehow the Lakers and LeBron James like tamper with players all the time, but they always just get a slap on the wrist. But that's because it's his league, basically. You can't technically talk to players before the free agency period or the free agency like meeting period opens. Yet every year, as soon as like midnight hits or whatever the time, this year it was at five o'clock or something like that hits there is multiple deals being reported you know it's 501 a minute past when this is starting to be allowed and Kyle Lowry has agreed to a deal with the Miami Heat for three years 90 million dollars or whatever you know 20 minutes after the the deadline starts you get these big deals and it's like wow you must have had the best 20 minute meeting of all time but we all know they're talking to these players beforehand. Like, as soon as the season ends, they're reaching out through back channels, getting contact of any way possible. That's just how this kind of works. But the NBA has started to crack down on this a little bit more. The NBA's probe is going to examine illegal contact among teams and players ahead of the opening of free agency on Monday. That was at 5 o'clock. Team executives, players, agents, and players have actually been notified of the opening of the league's office investigations and specifically two players who are getting really investigated here. Lonzo Ball, who signed a, a deal with the Chicago Bulls and Kyle Lowry, who signed a deal with the Miami Heat. And the NBA has instituted more stringent penalties 
2019 was the start of this where they raised the maximum fine for teams to up to $10 million. So you can find up to $10 million for this. You can also get team executives suspended, which I don't even know what that means. It's not like a player getting suspended where it's like, hey, LeBron, you got to miss a couple games here. Or, hey, this head coach can't coach in a couple games. Team executive gets suspended. What does that mean? He can't show up to the arena. He has to watch the game on TV for two days. Um, but they can also forfeit draft picks, which that's a pretty big one in addition to up to a $10 million fine. You can even void the contracts of players. And this one's interesting. Team executives can have their communications, such as telephone records, texts, and emails, randomly audited at any point. So I would imagine in this case, like Miami Heat and Chicago Bulls uh, executives are going to have this ran for. And it's it's interesting in the case of guys like Lonzo Ball and Kyle Lowry because this isn't just players signing in places where they weren't before. This is situations of players who were under, I guess, technical control of their team in terms of like bird rights or restricted free agency or whatnot that had sign and trade deals. So the NBA has to not just investigate if there was illicit contact with the players in the new team they're on, but also to see what the contact was with their current team because the current team technically traded them away in sign and trade deals. That just makes it even stickier. And this did actually affect things last year. Boyan Bogdanovich, who ended up signing, or I think that's the right Bogdan. No, it's actually Bogdan Bogdanovich. There's like two or three Bogdanoviches in the NBA. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich signed with the Milwaukee Bucks last offseason. And this was another case of a player signing right around the deadline. So the NBA said, wait a minute, this seems a little fishy. He signed literally right after the deadline, and they investigated it. Again, like I said earlier, if this happens to like the Lakers, they're probably not investigating it, or they are, and they're just giving them a slap on the wrist. Like, oh, here's a $2,000 fine, which you'll make back as soon as all the jersey sales come in for the new player that you just signed. But they slapped Milwaukee pretty hard, and they ended up voiding the contract. They made Milwaukee lose a second-round pick in 2022. They fined him for tampering charges, and then Bogdanovich ended up signing with the Hawks. Could you imagine if... Because it's one thing with Bogdanovich as well. This happens with, like, Kyle Lowry. That was maybe one of the biggest free agency deals in terms of how good the player is that we've seen so far this offseason. Same with Lonzo Ball with the Bulls, if that gets retracted because of what occurred here um, in terms of tampering or whatnot. Uh, A new contract also in place for a soccer player, Lionel Messi, some consider maybe the greatest soccer player ever. He's leaving Barcelona for PSG. I don't really have anything more to say here. Getting a two-year contract worth 40 million euros a year, which is why I call him Lionel Money. But I, I really don't have anything of knowledge to say here like good soccer player going to another spot PSG uh, with him and Kylian Mbappe they'll probably win the Champions League question mark finally last story we have for today's edition of Case of the Mondays this is kind of more of a somber one to end on Bobby Bowden passed away over the weekend but also Bobby Bowden lived a great life both in terms of length in terms of his impact on others around him in terms of the legacy that he leaves, in terms of having a big family and everything. He was 91 years old, lived a great life, and it's sad that he passes away 
but by all accounts sounded like an awesome person obviously there's more important things than just the football by all accounts it seemed that Bowden was helpful to the community to local media members to the players he coached and helped along the way at his time at Florida State I saw a quote today him talking about you know if somebody treats you poorly treat them well because that is going to drive them more crazy and if anything that's going to lead to kind of a better way of moving things around in life but obviously like I said more important things than football but the run of dominance that Bobby Bowden had because I I can't speak to the character I never met the guy all I have is stories of hearing about his impact on other things outside of football but I can go back and look at, at, at the football and the run of dominance he had is absolutely remarkable you know until Nick Saban took over at Alabama this was maybe honestly the gold standard for what you could do in like a 10 to 15 year run. And since then, like I said, Nick Saban has kind of taken that over and taken it even to new extremes from there. But Bowden won two national titles and who knows, it might've been even more if a four team playoff was around like it is today. I mean, we might be viewing him in the same light at what Nick Saban has done at Alabama in that situation. So from 1987 to 2000. That's a 14-year stretch. Bobby Bowden won double-digit games every single season in that 14-year span. And keep in mind, this is back before the college football schedule was expanded to you play 12 regular season games plus the conference championship. You were playing 11 regular season games, and you were still winning double-digit games every season for that 14-year span from 1987 to 2000. Of those 14 years... Bobby Bowden finished in the top five in the AP poll just at the end of the regular season, top five, 11 out of 14 times. And the times they didn't, the three times they didn't finish in the AP top five at the end of the regular season in that 14-year span, they were sixth, seventh, and eighth. So top eight all 14 years. Top five, 11 of the 14, and the three you weren't, you barely missed out. More specifically, though, if you just look at the top four at the end of the regular season, which hypothetically would mean that you are a college football playoff team. And again, the difference between the AP poll and the college football playoff rankings is obviously going to be different there. But that's all we had then, so that's what we're going to have to go off of. In that 14-year run, Bobby Bowden's teams finished in the top four at the end of the regular season in the AP poll, nine times. So in a 14-year span, he would have made the playoff nine times out of 14. That is some Nick Saban Alabama stuff. And if you also look at the final AP poll, which considers after the bowl game occurred, they finished top five in the AP poll after bowl games in that 14-year span from 1987 to 2000 on all 14 occasions. Zero times where they did not finish in the top five in the AP poll. That is an unbelievable mark of consistency, of dominance. He won two national titles in that span. And if there was a playoff, who knows? Maybe he wins a third or a fourth at that point as well. And really until Nick Saban, we hadn't seen that stretch of consistency and dominance of being in the top four or five. I might be leaving out some people, who knows, in the 40s or 50s or something. But 
just of like modern college football. Unbelievable run from Bobby Bowden. Like I said, too, from the football side to the non-football side, seems like he lived an incredible life and rest in peace. Bobby Bowden, one of the greatest pioneers in college football history. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk.